tell you what, these, these ladies, they worked as hard this week, if not harder on the drama than I did on my sermon. <laughs> that when, when I heard they were going for that, I just thought, man, if you can pull that off, that is a feat to be applauded. So uh, pretty impressive. Well, if you got your Bibles, uh, open up with me to the third chapter of the book of Luke. We're going to be continuing our, our study of Dr. Luke's gospel of Jesus Christ, his biography of Jesus Christ. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21 today, looking at the baptism and genealogy of Jesus Christ. Got a quick story to share with you before we get into our message this morning. When I was a senior in college, I, I attended Bethel College down in St. Paul. My senior year of college, I was so excited because, you know, I'd been into it four years and I was right on the verge of graduating. It was my second semester. And uh, I went in to meet with my academic advisor and I discovered that I was one required credit short of graduating. And I was like, oh, okay, well, all right, I got one more semester, I can finish this, no problem. And I discovered that it was my math requirement that I needed to fulfill in order to graduate. Now, when I found out it was my math requirement, I mean, I was just like, oh, unbelievable. Are you kidding? Out of everything, I got to take a math class? You know, I mean, I hadn't took, taken a math class since I was a junior in high school at this point. And, and math has never been my favorite subject. I'm, uh, anyone who knows me well will tell you I'm, I'm not a math whiz by any means, you know, as soon as they started replacing numbers with letters, my brain just kind of shut off. You know what I'm saying? It was like, all right, we can't handle this anymore. And, uh, and so I found out I had to take a math class and I'm thinking, oh, this is a bummer. Well, I discovered as I was looking through the course catalog, I discovered that there was a class in my major. I was a philosophy major in college. There was a class in my philosophy major that counted towards the math requirement. And I'm thinking, this is great, a philosophy class that counts for my math credit? I can do that. And so I signed up for a class called Logic. And... Now you're laughing already. Well, logic, if you look up logic, logic is really the, the study of reasoning and argumentation. And I'm thinking, okay, I like doing this. You know, I, I like debate and, you know, and coming up with arguments for why I believe what I believe as a Christian. And, and so I was kind of excited to get into this logic class. Well, the first week of the class went great because all the first week was about was about forming verbal arguments and recognizing, you know, fallacious arguments versus valid arguments. And, and I was thinking, this is awesome. I can handle this class. You know, the second week, however, changed course dramatically from the first week to the second week. The entire rest of the semester was a study in what is called formal logic or symbolic logic. And I looked in my course, my textbook, and in the second chapter of our textbook, I was introduced to this. And for the next three months, all I did was look at these logical equations, this formal logical syllogism is what they're called. And what these are are symbolic equations that represent verbal arguments, but they're very complex. They're very complicated. And like I said, when, when number, when letters started replacing numbers in my mind, mathematically, my mind just kind of like went dead and blank. So... I needed to finish this course to graduate, but I was having major trouble. I mean, I, I just couldn't get it. My, these equations, my mind was just like, I can't do this. All right. If you put it into words, I can, I can make sense of that. But, but this equation stuff just wasn't happening for me. 
And my professor, by the grace of God, this guy, I tell you what, I failed every test in this class. I'm not even kidding you. I'm not kidding you. I should have flunked out and not graduated. But my professor, he saw how hard I was working. I mean, I went to his class for hours every week after his office for hours every week after class for private lessons, tutoring, trying to get it. I worked as hard as I ever worked in any class of my life. This was my senior year, man. I was supposed to be on the senior slide and I'm working through these equations. And my professor, he saw how hard I was working. He saw the time I was putting in. So he ended up giving me some extra credit projects that he allowed me to make up for my poor scores and my exams. And I ended up passing the course by the skin of my teeth. And uh, I still, every time I see that professor to this very day, I still thank him for his grace because I know it was only because of his grace that I was able to pass this class. Well, why am I sharing all this with you this morning? I'm sharing this with you this morning because today we are going to find an equation in scripture that has literally transformed the world. All right. It's not one of these logical, crazy, you know, symbolic equations. It's a theological equation found in the gospel of Luke that has transformed my life. That's transformed countless lives in this room, I'm sure, and has literally changed the course of human history. And it's it's an equation found in the gospel of Luke. Are are you curious what this equation is that we're going to look at this morning? Let me show you on the screen behind me. Son of God plus son of man equals the perfect lamb of God. Son of God plus the son of man equals the perfect lamb of God. What we're going to find this morning as we read through this section of Luke chapter 3, we're going to see Luke highlight these three truths for us that form this divine equation that has transformative power to change lives. That's literally changed human history. Luke is going to reveal for us today the reality that Jesus was the son of God. And he was also the son of man. Fully God, fully man. And as such, Jesus Christ alone was the perfect lamb of God who was able to take away the sins of the world. It's a powerful, powerful equation that we see here in the book of Luke. So what I want to do today is read through this passage together. And then I want to come back and I want to highlight these three truths that we find here in Luke chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along. You can read it on the screen with us. Starting in verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Remember last week we talked about John the Baptist and his baptism of repentance that he was doing. Jesus came and he was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him, on Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. What an incredible story. Luke transitions from his testimony of Jesus' baptism to providing for us the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan. 
the son of Rasa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melki, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon. And no, we're not done. There's more. The son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of, son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Wow. Now, friends, how many of you would say that's about the first time you've probably ever read through that whole genealogy, right? I'll tell you a little secret. When us pastors get together and we're swapping notes on uh, what we're preaching, uh, you know, you often hear a pastor talk about a great passage of scripture and he'll say, you know, that'll preach, you know. Uh, this is typically not one of those passages we look at and say, that'll preach. But, uh, you know, somehow Pastor Rick conveniently arranged it that I'm preaching on this today. So <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll do our best to uh, explain the significance of this genealogy to you. But it's actually really, really fascinating to explore the genealogies of Jesus Christ. There's two genealogies we have in Scripture. There's one here in the book of Luke, and there's one in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll talk about those here in a few minutes. But I want to highlight three truths that we find here between the baptism of Jesus Christ and the genealogy of Jesus Christ that help us understand the divine equation that we're talking about this morning. Son of God plus Son of Man equals the perfect Lamb of God. And the first truth that we're going to look at this morning comes from the scene of Jesus' baptism. And truth number one today is this. In his baptism, we see Jesus as the Son of God. In his baptism, we see Jesus as the Son of God. It's very interesting, friends. All four of the Gospels in the New Testament, the biographies of Jesus Christ, each of the four Gospels highlights and points out the baptism of Jesus Christ. The Gospel authors recognize that it was his baptism which was one of the pivotal moments of his life and ministry. And Luke, as well, highlights this baptism of Jesus Christ. What's very interesting to think about, a lot of people ask the question, you know, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Right? If you remember last week, John the Baptist was proclaiming a baptism of repentance. He was calling people to turn from their sins and to turn to God, to align their hearts with God's will for their lives. And a lot of people ask, well, wait a minute, why Jesus was sinless. Right? He was, he was the perfect man. He was the son of God, God in human flesh. What was God in flesh doing going to John to be baptized in a baptism of repentance? It's very interesting, friends. There are two reasons why Jesus went to be baptized by John. Number one, we find Jesus going to be baptized, first of all, to affirm and identify with John the Baptist's message. 
Jesus wanted to affirm and identify with John's message. If you read Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus Christ found in Matthew chapter 3, you'll find that when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized, John argued with him. John said, no way, I'm not going to baptize you, you should be baptizing me. Remember, John says, I'm I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of your sandals, right? I should be the one being baptized by you. But Jesus in Matthew 3.15 says to John the Baptist, no, we must do this to fulfill all righteousness. It's proper for us to do this, Jesus says, to fulfill all righteousness. And what Jesus was saying to John the Baptist here was he wanted to identify with God's command that he had given to his people to turn their hearts to him, to repent and turn to him. Jesus wanted to identify with the human beings that he had come to save. And he wanted to highlight the importance of this message that God desires repentant hearts in in alignment with his will. And so Jesus in being baptized was basically giving a public testimony to everybody watching that what John was proclaiming was true. That the message of repentance and the need for us to align our hearts with God's will for our lives is absolutely true. And so Jesus was being obedient to the will of his heavenly father by going forward to be baptized. It wasn't that he himself needed that baptism to forgive his sin. He had no sin. But he wanted the people of the world to recognize that the message of John's baptism was absolutely fundamental to a right relationship with God. And if you recall, friends... All the way back to the very beginning of Jesus' life, he was faithful at every step of the way of fulfilling God's requirements for humanity. If you were here on Christmas Sunday with us, we talked about how when Jesus was an infant, he was taken to the temple 40 days after his birth to go through with his mother Mary a Jewish purification ritual, which God had required in the Old Testament. Not only that, but that same day at the temple, he was presented to the Lord in a dedication ceremony with the priests at the temple required by the Old Testament. Here was the Son of God from his infancy fulfilling all of God's requirements for men and women, even in his baptism fulfilling that requirement for men and women, because again, as the Son of God, the perfect human being who did not sin, he wanted to fulfill all of the righteous requirements of God so that he would ultimately be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus was identifying and affirming John's message. The second reason Jesus was baptized was he wanted to authenticate his ministry. And we see in his baptism God's authentication of Jesus as the Messiah and his anointing of Jesus for his earthly ministry. Jesus' baptism, friends, when we read the accounts of it, was a supernatural event. An incredible event where the entire triune Godhead was present. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all present at once speaking affirmation on Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. Now I want you to picture this scene that that Luke paints for us of the baptism of Jesus Christ. Luke tells us first of all that the heavens were opened. Now Luke's not saying, look, like, like a breeze came through and some of the clouds kind of blew apart. 
That's not what he's saying. In the Greek, Luke uses the word uranos. Uranos for the, the word heavens. The heavens were open. The word uranos is where we get our word, the planet Uranus from. It's the same word. Uranos in the Greek refers to the region of the sky beyond the atmosphere. Beyond the area where the birds fly. The stuff beyond. Everything outer space and beyond that the ancients knew nothing of. It was totally mysterious. They called it the heavens. And Luke tells us that the heavens were open. Imagine the scene where the skies are literally rent apart. And the people watching are seeing this incredible scene into, into outer space. Maybe even into some spiritual dimension. The heavens are pulled apart. And all of a sudden, out of the heavens descends a dove. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends and lands on Jesus Christ. You know, I think it's always interesting, you know, why, why was it a dove, you know? Why not, why not like a big bald eagle or a hawk or something, right? I mean, that would have been cool. But it was a dove. And when you think about the symbolism there, friends, the dove is the, is the gentlest of all birds. You know, a dove will come and eat right out of the palm of your hand. They're just gentle. They're meek. And how symbolic and characteristic is that of Jesus in his life and his ministry? The one who welcomed sinners. The one who beckoned the young children to come unto me. The one who had words of hope and comfort and compassion for the downtrodden and the brokenhearted. And so the Holy Spirit lands on Jesus in the form of a dove. And then, as if all of this wasn't enough, I mean, you're standing there watching this. Imagine this. The heavens are open. The Holy Spirit lands on Christ as a dove. And now, a voice from heaven booms out. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What an incredible scene here, friends. The voice from heaven in quoting, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The the father in heaven was actually speaking a loving blessing over his son by using two Old Testament prophecies for the coming Messiah. When he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he's actually combining two verses in the Old Testament. Psalm 2, verses 6 through 7, which is a reference to the Messiah as the king. And then Isaiah 42, 1, which is a reference to the Messiah as servant. So God, the Heavenly Father, combines these two messianic prophecies and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, look at this voice from heaven is saying those prophecies that you've been reading, those prophecies about the one to come that you've been looking forward to, right? This is him, okay? And if my voice alone isn't enough, I am testifying to you that the prophecies that you've been reading and waiting for are pointing to the one standing in the river with John. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now I want you to picture this scene, friends. This is, this is incredible. The heavens are opened. The Holy Spirit descends on Christ. A voice from heaven booms out. Imagine standing there at the banks of the Jordan River, seeing all of this take place. And friends, everything Luke reports here completely destroys the shallow pop culture visions of Jesus that are so common in our world today. So many people look at Jesus and they think, well, you know, Jesus, he was just this great teacher of morality. Jesus was was sort of a a self-help guru or maybe a political revolutionary or or maybe at best he was some kind of a religious prophet, but that's about it. 
But friends, the reality is if what Luke testifies is true, all of these visions of Jesus fall woefully short of the one who was truly standing in the river that day with John. In Luke's testimony, we see that Jesus is not like anyone else who came before him, nor anyone since. In all of human history, friends, there has ever been only one to whom such an experience can be ascribed. In all of history, there has ever been only one who has been called by the Heavenly Father, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Only one, friends. Jesus Christ. And what this means, what this means is if Luke's report is true here, when it comes to Jesus Christ, we are not considering one option among many, like some buffet line where you get to go and pick and choose what, what works for you, what most pleases you. This, is, this isn't an option for us. No, in Jesus Christ, friends, we are forced to face the implications of the claim above all claims. That God has broken into human history. He has come in human flesh. And friends, if that is true, that's a game changer. That changes everything. There have been other teachers of morality, friends. There have been other kings. There have been other prophets. But only Jesus Christ has ever fulfilled all of these roles as God's son. And so in Jesus Christ, we find the unique one. A unique son, a unique mission, a unique savior. And as such, we must give careful consideration to his unique claims. Claims like John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Friends, if that was the son of God standing in the river with John the Baptist... When he claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. There is nothing more important than knowing the Son of God. Than aligning your lives with him. By putting your trust and faith and hope in him. There's nothing more important. Later on in Jesus' ministry, Jesus' disciples came to him and Jesus asked them, Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? What about you? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he the son of God? Come in human flesh. Is he the way and the truth and the life? There's nothing more important for us to consider than that question. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, the second truth we find in our passage today, not only does Luke highlight for us the reality that Jesus was the Son of God, but then Luke goes on in his genealogy to show us that in Jesus Christ, we find the Son of Man. In Luke's genealogy, we see Jesus as the Son of Man. Luke's genealogy is interesting. You know, 77 names that we just read through in Luke's genealogy, 78 if you include God. And in this testimony, we find Jesus' lineage, his family tree, going back to Adam. 
I've always been fascinated by, by studying my family tree. You know, last week I shared in my message that I'm a, I'm a fourth-generation pastor. My great-great-grandfather was a circuit-riding evangelist with the Salvation Army in Sweden. And, uh, and, I, and I've always just been fascinated going back and studying my family's history. And, uh, in fact, just this last summer, I had a really cool opportunity to take my family. We were doing some, some historical uh, research in my mom's, on my mom's side of the family. And uh, one afternoon, on one of my days off, my family and I, we drove out, if you got the picture, we drove out to Warehouser, Wisconsin. If you head east on Highway 8, right into north-central Wisconsin, right in the middle of north-central Wisconsin, you'll run into a tiny little town called Warehouser. If you blink, you'll drive right through it and miss it, all right? And uh, we went to Warehouser that day because I wanted to show my kids where my great-grandfather lived on my mom's side. My great-grandfather, Daniel Perry, was the train depot manager for the Sioux Line in Warehouser, Wisconsin. And the city of Warehouser has recently restored the, uh, the original train station. You can see my great-grandfather there in the window uh, watching his uh, clock looking for the train to come. But it's really interesting. I've always been fascinating, fascinated by studying my family lineage, my family tree. And when it comes to the genealogies of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, you know, it's often tempting for us, I think, to, to look at these long list of names and just, just skip right over them, right? I mean, it's kind of daunting. Half of these things we can hardly pronounce. You know, I read through that list. I was just making up half of those names, friend. I don't know how they're pronounced. I was, going, you know, I was making up as I go. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. But it's easy for us to look at these genealogies and just kind of like skip right over them. In fact, J.B. Phillips, who was a famous Bible translator in the early 20th century, he wrote, he translated what's called the Phillips translation. He was trying to create for his day and age a, a readable translation in contemporary English for people in, in England. And, and J.B. Phillips, when he came to the genealogies of Jesus, he originally left them out of his translation because he thought they would be boring and irrelevant to people. But friends, what a huge error. What a huge mistake. They're not easy to read. I admit that. But in the genealogies, what we find are actually some fascinating and crucial insights into who Jesus is as the Son of Man. As I said in, a minute ago, in Luke's genealogy, we find 77 names, 78 if you include God. Some of these names are well-known biblical figures like King David and Abraham. And others of them, others, we, we only know them in these genealogies. They're not mentioned anywhere else. Now what's interesting is Matthew's genealogy differs from Luke's genealogy. They're they're different. In fact, they're different in some significant ways. They have different names in the list. They're different lengths. Luke's genealogy says that Joseph, or that Heli was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whereas Matthew's genealogy says Jacob was the father of Joseph. There's, there's some interesting differences here. And what's fascinating is skeptics, if you go online, skeptics and critics of Christianity will often highlight the differences in the genealogies of Jesus. And they'll say, look at the authors of the Gospels made mistakes. There's contradictions. There's errors. Just look at the genealogies. They got things wrong. But friends, when you understand the historical background of what these authors were really giving us in these genealogies, what we find are not mistakes, but actually complementary accounts of Jesus' lineage. It's very interesting. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, he gives us Jesus' lineage through Joseph, back through King David, 
ultimately stopping at Abraham, the father of the Jewish race. And what Matthew wanted to do was he was trying to emphasize for us Jesus' royal lineage as king. He wanted us to see Jesus' connection to the Old Testament messianic prophecies that the Messiah would come as the king of the Jews. And so that was his goal, his agenda. Luke, on the other hand, was writing to a Gentile audience, non-Jewish people. And so Luke, in his genealogy, which we read here this morning, Luke gives us Jesus' lineage through Mary all the way back to Adam, the first man, to emphasize Jesus' solidarity with humanity. He wanted to show his connection to all of us, to the human race. So these aren't two competing or contradictory accounts. One is tracing Jesus' family line through Matthew. The other is tracing Jesus' family line through Mary. Are you following me here on this, friends? Okay, now listen, this is interesting. Some critics or skeptics will say, well, what about Jacob and Heli, right? Matthew's account says that Jacob was Joseph's father, whereas Luke's account says that Heli was Joseph's father. Which is it? Well, again, friends, if you understand the customs of the ancient world, this isn't a contradiction. It's not an error. It's not a problem whatsoever. Heli was Mary's father. Jacob was Joseph's father. But Heli apparently had no sons. And so legally, he had no ancestors to pass on his family name and his family heritage to. And so when Joseph married Mary, Heli, Mary's father, adopted Joseph as his son, as was the common practice at this day in the ancient world. Okay, So Jacob was Joseph's father, but in a legal sense, it was actually correct of Luke to also say that Heli was Joseph's father. Are you following me on this? So again, no errors here, no contradictions, just two complementary accounts of Jesus' family tree. So I want you to understand what we've learned so far about Jesus as we've looked through the Gospel of Luke. Luke's given us an interesting testimony of the person of Jesus Christ. Next slide, please. First of all, what we see, going all the way back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, number one, Jesus was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Number two, he had no human father. Number three, Jesus is truly the Son of God as affirmed by the events at his miraculous baptism. And four, Jesus was at the very same time fully human as it revealed in his genealogy through the line of Mary. Fully God and also fully man. What's interesting, friends, is all the way back at the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, God had prophesied that the Messiah would one day come and would be born of the seed of a woman. He would not have an earthly father. No other human in all of history is of the seed of a woman. We're all the seed of a man. If you, if you don't get the biology on that again, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know, where are our doctors? You can talk to them after, afterwards. But Jesus, it was prophesied, would be of the seed of a woman. He would have no earthly father. And Luke's genealogy affirms this. People sometimes ask, well, did Jesus have human DNA? Have you ever wondered that? Did Jesus have human DNA? Absolutely he did. But it was the DNA of his human mother, Mary. 
Jesus had human DNA through Mary, the same human DNA that all of us share, going back to the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul says, from one man, he made every nation of men. Friends, every human being in the world is related through Adam and Eve. We all share one blood. And Jesus, too, was fully human, sharing the DNA that we all share. Friends, this isn't just the biblical testimony. You know, skeptics and critics used to scoff at this idea that we were all descended from Adam and Eve. But do you know what modern-day genetics has shown us? Take a look at this. National Geographic, a few, few years ago, had a cover story, The Greatest Journey Ever Told, The Trail of Our DNA. It was a story about what is called the Mother Eve study. Do you know that over the last decade, geneticists have taken DNA samples of humans from all over the globe, and they have discovered that every single man and every single woman in the world can trace their genetic ancestry back to one original man and one original woman. Hmm. Where have I heard that before? Right? This is, this is science confirming what God's word has told us for thousands of years. All of us can trace our genetic ancestry back to one original man, one original woman. So look at this. The bottom line here in Luke's genealogy of Jesus Christ is this. Luke wants us to see that the one who is the son of God is equally the son of man, the son of Adam. He was born into this world. He identified with the needs and problems of humanity. He experienced the reality of trials and temptations like us all. And the question is, why would God humble himself in this way? Why would God leave his heavenly throne to become a man? He did it, friends, because he loves us. He did it because he loves us. It's very interesting. About 12 years ago, my dad and I were in Tokyo, Japan, speaking. And uh, we were speaking at Tokyo Baptist Church. It's the largest evangelical church in Japan. And one of our afternoons, we had the pastor of this church had arranged for us to go to the Tokyo Mosque. The, the Muslims in Tokyo had recently built this huge mosque in the heart of downtown Tokyo. And he had arranged for us to go and sit down and meet with the head imam of this mosque in Tokyo. And we had a fascinating conversation for about two hours with this Muslim imam. He was from Pakistan. And we sat and we talked and we started sharing the gospel with this Muslim imam. We started telling him how God humbled himself and broke into human history. He took on the form of a man so that we could know him and have a relationship with him. And it was very fascinating. As soon as we started talking about God becoming man, this Muslim imam stopped us, broke into the conversation, interrupted us and said, No, 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 no. Allah Akbar. God is great. God would never humble himself to become a man. God is great. Allah Akbar. You see, in the religion of Islam, their view of God, their view of their God, Allah, is that Allah is so great, so transcendent, that Allah would never stoop so low to become a human being. It's very interesting. I shared with this Muslim imam, I said, you know what, sir, there are two kinds of greatness. There's the greatness of the king who sits up on his high hill, on the high hill, hiding behind his castle walls, enthroned in luxury, so far removed from everybody else. And we call that king great because of his transcendence, his removal from the rest of the population. But I said, you know what, there's another kind of greatness. 
There's the greatness of the wealthy medical doctor who leaves a lucrative practice to go to Africa to care for the poor and the sick. And I said, we look at a person like that and we say, he is great. And friends, when we're talking about Jesus Christ, we're talking about the greatness of God who left his heavenly sanctuary, who became a man so that we could know him and have a relationship with him. And for that, we say, God, God is great. Like John 1, verses 1 and 14 tell us, in the beginning was the word, Jesus Christ. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And friends, this leads me to truth number three as we conclude this morning. Because Jesus was son of God and because he was son of man, as son of God and son of man, Jesus is the perfect lamb of God. In John chapter 1, 29, in his account of John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism, John reports that the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, the answer to our divine equation this morning, the Son of God plus the Son of Man equals the perfect Lamb of God. Understand this, friends, as Son of God, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, thereby offering himself as a perfect sacrifice. As the Son of Man, he was like us in every way, but without sin. And as a man, as the second Adam, as the new representative of the human race, Jesus became the perfect substitute for you and I. He could stand in our place and bear the punishment we deserve for our rebellion against God. 700 years before Jesus Christ, the prophet Isaiah foretold the coming of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. In Isaiah 53, we read, Surely he took up our infirmities, and he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ became the sacrificial lamb of God. As son of God and son of man, he was the perfect sacrifice to stand in our place. And when Jesus died on that cross and shed his blood, God took his shed blood and applied it to you and I when we put our trust in him. And God covers us with the shed blood of Jesus Christ so that God in his holiness no longer sees our sin, but he sees the sacrificial blood of Jesus, that perfect lamb of God that covers our sin so that we can come into God's holy presence and enter into a relationship with him. Friends, this is why the message of Christianity is called the gospel. It's the good news. It's the hope of the world. It's what saved me. It's what saved so many of you. And friends, if you're here this morning and if you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, God's sacrificial gift of Jesus can save you as well. It's such an easy thing to receive this gift. In Romans 10, 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul 
Go ahead to the last slide, please. Romans 10, 9 through 11. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your mouth that you believe and are justified. It is with, or it was with your heart that you are believed and justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Look at this. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Friends, what a great hope. What a great promise. You will never be put to shame by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. He can forgive you of your sins. He can cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He can make you a new creation. That's the hope of the gospel. And I pray that you've received that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony that we've seen here in Luke's gospel this morning. That you were the son of God and the son of man. And as such, you are the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness in coming to this world. To show us who you are. To show us the way to life and life to the full. To offer us new life through your sacrificial death. And Jesus, I just thank you for what you've done in my life. I thank you for how you've covered my sins and allowed me to come into a new relationship with you. I thank you, God, for the hundreds in this room who have experienced your grace through the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God. And I pray, Jesus, if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't yet received that gift of salvation, that they might turn their heart to you today. That they might trust in you today and receive the gift of your salvation by simply believing in their heart and confessing with their mouth that you are Lord. And in doing that, God, you promise we will never be put to shame. We thank you, Jesus, for the message of the gospel. Thank you for the testimony of Dr. Luke, of Jesus' baptism and his genealogy. Even though these things are sometimes hard and complicated for us to understand, they give us a greater vision of the one we serve, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the perfect Lamb of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close?